Well, I loved and I still love the Christmas season. Uh, growing up, I was the oldest of four, and so I grew up in um, central PA, and my family down in Hart with my grandparents would come up on Christmas Eve, and we were so excited to see Grandma and Grandpa. We could not wait for them to come. We would have dinner together. We would go to bed, and being the oldest of four, that meant that I was responsible of what was going to happen when we woke up. And so our parents told us, hey, you have until 6 o'clock in the morning. So that means you cannot cannot get out to the living room where all the gifts are going to be. You have to stay in your room. 6 o'clock, you can knock on our door and we'll open gifts. And so we were pumped. And so we were up at 4.30. My brothers came into my room. My sister came to my room. And I, I remember watching, we, we had a 13-inch colored TV. You know, one of those boxy TVs. And we were watching a show. And then we were just talking. We were talking about what we were going to get, what we were going to open. And the gift that all of us were going to get together, we could not wait for that to happen. And so it was 5.55, and then 5.56, and 5.57. We were getting up. We were getting antsy. We could not wait. We were all lined up at the door. 5.58, 5.59, and then 6 o'clock, we opened that door. We knocked, knock, knock on my parents' door. They were like, hey, you got to get Grandma and Grandpa up, but let us do that because to get to the basement, you had to go through the living room, and we were just wait, ready. Man, we were waiting. We were ready, and then they would say, it's time to open the gifts. And man, we would run through uh, down the hallway into the living room. We all had our pile of gifts and we could not wait. And then uh, I was one of the kids, I mean, I was one of the guys that along with 25% of Christmas-loving Americans starting November 1st after the devil's holiday. No, I'm kidding. Joke, joke. We listened to Christmas music Love listening to Christmas music, man. It just sets the tone for the year. And then got married, and then things changed. Jenny and I, we had uh, Christmas with her family, and it was different. Uh, we went to church, and then we opened gifts, the gifts that we had uh, given to each other. We opened those. And then in the morning, the kids woke up to the, the Santa gifts, and then we had dinner together. It was different from what I grew up with. And then tragedy happened. And Christmas just hasn't been the same since. Um, there's grieving and there's still grieving. Um, we remember our last quote-unquote normal Christmas we had with Jenny's parents in 2017. Uh, 2018, um, they both passed. And unexpectedly they passed. And honestly, we have not found a rhythm uh, with her brother uh, leading the church now. Um, they, they brought him to be the pastor um, we pastor here, and then we also, you know, have the pandemic. You throw that in, I mean, it just, ha we have not found a rhythm. We have not found a rhythm for Christmas. And even with all that pain, I still believe that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year. And it's not because of what's happening. Y'all, there are problems that we can't solve. There are, there are people that we can't control, and there are expectations that we can't meet. But in the same breath, and let's be honest, let's be honest with ourselves. I am the problem I cannot solve. I am the person I can't seem to control. I set expectations others cannot meet. Regardless of what's going on with you or your family or maybe your lack of family, 
this is really the most wonderful time of the year. Unlike Easter, which, you know, that date, man, it moves around all, all year, right? It moves around all the time. One year it's early March or next year it's mid-April. It just seems to sneak up on us because it's not a fixed date. Christmas is a fixed date, man. We look forward to December 25th <laughs> on December 26th. We look forward to that date. Why? Because we know it's a fixed date. We look forward to it. Unlike Easter, where we pause the day to reflect on the most wonderful event in history, at Christmas, our thoughts are aimed for a month at the event that stands at the center of history. This is a moment that divides history before Christ and after Christ. This event has the power to, to stand at the center of our lives and to recenter our life. This moment, it creates a new narrative for our lives. It creates new stories for our life. And then we all have a chance at a life before Christ and a life after Christ. The truth that your Christmas may not be what it could or what it should be and that you can't fix it. Y'all, that's the reason God sent His Son, Jesus, into this world. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year because of who is with us and who is for us, Jesus. So let's jump in. When John, who was an old man, sat down to write and dictate um, the account of Jesus' life, he wanted to provide a biography so for people to for people to know the good news, he realized that he didn't want to start with the birth narrative like Matthew and Luke. No, instead, he didn't want to give the details. He wanted to give the why behind Jesus' birth, why Jesus came. See, John, he, he saw it all. He felt it all. He, he smelled it all. He stood with his arm around Mary, Jesus' mom, and watched his friend bleed to death. And in that moment, he lost all hope. He lost all faith. And then there was murmurings that the tomb was empty. And so he outran Peter to the tomb. He looked in. He saw the tomb was empty and it changed his life. And instead of telling us the details of his birth, like Matthew and Luke, he, he pivots. And he tells us why this is the most wonderful time of the year for all of us. See, when John was writing, he wrote at one of the most terrible times in human history, and really the history of the Jews, his people. See, the Romans, they had built this empire based on violence and oppression. Israel was one of those enslaved, oppressed nations. And the Jews living under this crazy emperor who he launched armies to make sure that they were in line. John saw and survived unimaginable horror. John survived the Romans' armies marched through Galilee. They got into the city and the battle became a stalemate. Unable to breach the city's defenses, the Roman armies, what they did is they established a permanent camp just outside the city. They dug a trench around the circumference of its walls and they built a dirt wall as high as the city walls. Now, anyone caught attempting to flee the city would be captured, crucified, and placed on top of that wall. As many as 500 crucifixions occurred in a single day. 
For seven months, the people of Jerusalem were left to starve. Disease broke out. And this didn't stop the thousands of dispersed Jews from traveling to celebrate what would be the last Passover at the temple. In August AD 70, Titus was able to breach the outer walls and the city fell. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he claims that 1.1 million people were killed during the siege. 97,000 were taken into slavery. See, the destruction of the temple marked the end of Old Testament Judaism. And in that moment and in that time, from the empty tomb to the destruction of the temple, John, he lost friends. He lost family members along the way. But that didn't stop him. See, see, something happened to John. That, that The moment where he ran and saw the empty tomb and he met the risen Jesus, it changed his life. See, John, even though he was surrounded around, surrounded by death, it, he felt more alive than he'd ever felt. And he planted six churches, at least that we know of. And then he was taken to Rome. He was sentenced to death. And so they placed him inside a cauldron filled with boiling oil and it didn't harm him. And then they took him out. They gave him poison and that didn't harm him. And so what they did is they exiled him to a slave labor island named Patmos, called Patmos. And there he received the vision, what would be called the book of Revelation. Then after the emperor died, he was released and he returned to Ephesus to live out his remaining days. See, when he was writing what we're about to read, it was dark. It was dark as it had ever been for his people and for the world. And yet he still believed. Along with many Jewish Christians who escaped and fled prior to the destruction of the temple, man, they wanted us to know why Jesus came. What gave them the energy? What gave them the passion? What gave them this feeling alive to make sure everyone knew about the good news? Notice what he writes. He says, The disciples saw Jesus do so many miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these, the ones that I wanted you to know, I wrote them so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I, I, know, I know things are dark. I know things look dim. It looks like things are impossible. But I wrote this so that you would continue to believe that Jesus is who he said that he was. He is God. Son of God. And that by believing in him that you will have life by the power of his name. He's like, I'm writing this so that you will feel alive because of what Jesus is doing in and through you. So as he sat and he wrote in these darkest of times, he also remembered when the story of Jesus began. It was dark then as well. Herod the Great, he ruled as a Roman client king. He was a madman. He killed some of his family members. He killed some rabbis to make sure that he obtained power. He sent butchers to Bethlehem to kill baby boys two years and, and younger. Historians say about 40 boys were murdered. 
but it would be the butcher Pilot who would finally take Jesus' life after declaring that he was basically innocent, that there was no charge that he could find against him. And so where does John begin Jesus' story? He skipped the baby part. He skipped the details of Jesus' baby, baby story. And he went right to the message that impacted him the most. He's like, this is what makes me feel alive. He wrote this. This is why Jesus came. The word gave life to everything that was created. Literally, in him, life was. The essentials of human life, I mean, I I believe that we know this. It's light, air, water, and food. And people have breath, right? We eat, we sleep, we drink, we go to work, we, we live in this world, and then we die. And some of us longer than others, some of us better than others. But here's the deal. Every one of us, we live at a biological level, right? We live at a biological level. John is saying, yes, we live at a biological level. But man, the word was different. It gave life. It gave spiritual life. And John said, man, there's something better. There's something different. There's something more uncontainable. In a dark world characterized by death, in Jesus, John experienced spiritual life. And in the face of death, John experienced unspeakable joy and remained faithful to Jesus. And through Jesus, John was more alive than he had ever been. See, Jesus is biological and spiritual life. He's abundantly more. He refers to the essentials of human life. He says, look, I am light in John 8. Jesus says, man, I give the breath of life through the Holy Spirit in John 3 and John 20. Light, air. He says, I'm the water of life in John 4. He says, I'm the bread of life in John 6. So Jesus is like, man, I'm everything that you need and more. I'm abundantly more. So the word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. In that newborn and in the man the baby would grow up to be, there was something so powerful that it broke through the darkness of injustice and corruption at that time. And it still does. John is saying that his friend Jesus brought something for everybody. Even the people who were the most unlike Jesus, like Jesus, because there was something different about him. The best way that John knew to describe it, he said it wasn't a Jewish thing. It wasn't a regional thing. Jesus wasn't the light of the Jews. No, no, Jesus is the light of the world. And then John makes one of the most remarkable statements in the entire New Testament. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Despite all that John had seen, all that he had lost, he concludes that the darkness of the world cannot put out his light. Caesar, who ruled the year Jesus was born, believed that his light was going to roll. It was going to stay lit. But the fact is, it didn't happen. See, he... He was gone, his legacy limited to an aging empire. Then Tiberius, he believed that his light was going to to last. He rolled when Jesus was crucified. He abandoned his role as emperor. He became a paranoid recluse. And when he died, the citizens, they wanted his body thrown in the river Tiber, 
like a common criminal. <laughs> Nero, who attempted to crush the early church, he thought his light could last forever. He thought he could, he could, he could take down the light. He had took, he took his own life in fear. The temple, the Jews thought was going to stand for a very long time, began to fade. It was destroyed. Christians were entertainment for spectators at the Roman circus. The world was in chaos and Satan and his subjects resisted the light. And John, as he says in Revelation, they will fail. They will fail. John knew with certainty, even as he faced the end of his days, that this light that began as a match in a manger would continue to burn bright with life because Jesus is that light. And because Jesus is forever, the light will be forever. In the end, Jesus wins the day. So, if this light for us, and for some of us, we are trying to carry this light ourselves. We are trying to conjure up hope. We're trying to conjure up there's something better. And for some of us, we're trying to do it on our own strength. See, at Christmas, we experience the complications of unmet expectations, and then our hope begins to go out. For some of us, on our own strength, then we miss loved ones. See, before, when they were alive, man, they, it was bright. But then it begins to fade when we lose hope. We're reminded of the darkness of the world. I mean, all you have to do is turn the TV on. And we begin to lose a little bit of hope. When we love those that have died, and when we're around those who remind us of the ones we miss, our hope dies out a little bit more. And then getting some of what we, some of what we really, really want, and it hasn't happened. Maybe you prayed for something. And you're just hoping that, man, that, that new husband, that new wife, maybe that son or daughter you've been praying for, and just nothing has happened for you. You're running out of hope. See, John wrote this so that we are reminded that when we're living in darkness, when we're faced with darkness, that there is a light and there is a light that penetrates the darkness of the darkness. And Jesus is that life. He is that light that overcomes the dark. We're, we celebrate at Christmas that God sent his light into this world to penetrate the darkness of darkness, that there is hope. And we are certain with this hope because it's Jesus. Jesus is our hope. What makes this the most wonderful time of the year is not necessarily what's happening but what happened? God sent his son Jesus into a very dark world. And when the word became flesh and made his home among us, Jesus revealed that there is more to this biological life. There is spiritual life. And when it's dark and when there's despair and we think that, we think that life is impossible, we think that situation is impossible,
we can feel more alive than we've ever been because of Jesus. John sums it up. He says, the word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Christmas is not the most wonderful time of the year because of what's happening, but because of what happened in Bethlehem. Christmas is not the most wonderful time of the year because of what's happening, but because of what happened all those years ago in a stable, in a manger, lay God. Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year because of who is with us and who is for us. And that's Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for the incredible reminder that you came to bring light and life, that you weren't content for us just to experience biological life. No, no, no. You wanted us to experience spiritual life. That God, when things are dark, that we would feel alive more than we've ever felt before. And so Father, I'm asking for those who are on the fence about Jesus, that God, you would convince them he would draw them in that Jesus is worth following because he changes everything. So Father, I ask that you will draw those hearts to yourself right now. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, this is a great reminder that we are facing dark times, that we may personally be facing some really hard times. But at the end of the day, no one will defeat Jesus. So, Father, help us to allow Jesus to be our only hope. Help us to feel alive than we've ever felt before as we surrender to Jesus. Thank you again for the reminder. In Jesus' name, amen.